Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 11, Destiny is Calling. Back in Episode 4, we saw several seemingly inconsequential events take place around the Krupp kitchen table that, only as the family's financial status changed, would show their importance. The inheritance of the Gustav Hebrich was settled on Alfred, the oldest male, while the self-same spent his leisure hours, few that they were, over the years creating two musket barrels out of cast steel. This was the last ingredient needed in the legend of Alfred Krupp and his descendants. Prosperity was coming to Essen, and with it, history. It's doubtful whether Alfred remembered the last time the family business dealt with weapons at all. He was seven years old, and his father was casting bayonets and shipping them out. And even that didn't last too long. Despite the varied stories of how Alfred got started in weaponry, the one that probably comes closest to the truth tells of the younger brother Hermann, at age 22, when on a trip in Munich being asked if weapons could be made out of cast steel. But, not being the head of the business, or family, Herman dutifully sent the question home in a letter. This happened in 1836, the same year Alfred started the process of forging a gun. So, there is a strong link. But between his trips and his administrative responsibilities, the first gun did not appear until seven years later. But, appear it did in the spring of 1843. And, just like everything else that came out of the forge, Alfred tried to sell it. But like every other slightly mad genius ahead of his time, Alfred would spend more years trying to sell his creation than he did in creating it. Whether it was patriotism or proximity, Alfred gave Prussia first crack at his new wear. But he didn't even make it past the main gate at the Sarn Arsenal. Turns out the guard at the gate was too focused on the summer heat and not focused enough on technology that would make Prussia a European leader. But with persistence, Alfred did find the name of an officer who was open to new ideas. This made the gentleman, in the eyes of the Prussian army, an eccentric. Doing his best for now, Alfred settled on sending his barrel to the officer, Captain von Linger, along with a letter that read, in part, Taking advantage of your kind permission, I have the honor to send you a musket barrel forged from the best crucible steel. At the top of the barrel, I have left standing a wedge-shaped piece, which can be cut off cold, and on which any desired test of the tenacity of the material can be made. We will never know if the officer read too much into this, but we shouldn't or don't need to. Alfred was experienced enough to know that the Prussian army was not going to change their small arms policy anytime soon. What he was really after was having a Prussian officer marvel over his crump cast steel and picturing it in the shape of a cannon. But to Krupp's chagrin, he obviously gave von Linger too much credit because his barrel was returned with two others he had sent afterward. Von Linger might have been just outside the main stream, but not by that much. Not quitting, because Alfred never quit anything, he next tried his favorite foreigners, the British. But they, like the Prussians, couldn't grasp the concept of steel weapons yet. 
frightfully sorry. Getting more frustrated, Alfred focused his attention on Prussia again, but this time decided on a different track and different tact. Going over Sarin's head, he lobbied Berlin's General War Department directly. Letters were written, palms were coined, and suddenly doors were opened. Sarn was ordered to test fire one of Krupp's barrels. The tests were conducted, and the Krupp steel performed magnificently. The officers even resorted to overpacking the barrel with powder. Still, the steel did its job. As soon as Alfred heard this, he wrote a letter to Jenner Hermann von Boyen, who had retired after the struggle with Napoleon was over, but had recently been persuaded to take the position of Minister of War. But if the young officers were blind to steel weapons, the older Van Boyen was truly sightless. On March 23, 1844, Alfred received a letter from the Department of War. It was inarticulate and had to be read between the lines. But the answer was completely no. The cost was too high, and besides, quote, no use whatever can be made thereof as regards the projection of musket barrels, unquote truly sightless. However, the letter did end with an interest in cannon made from crucible steel. Alfred had just taken a step forward. But there was a caveat. How to make the cannon without tooling up before Berlin placed a single order? There was no way. He would have to make do. So a six-pounder, what Alfred originally considered, was out. His opening letter to General von Boyen spoke highly of a three-pounder that would be coming soon. This swayed the general, who, on April 22, 1844, responded by saying he looked forward to seeing it. The swaying argument Krupp used that brought the general round was the phrase, I should have one, quote, within a couple of weeks, unquote. But Krupp misunderstood the complete process of cannon making. It was much more involved than he could have realized. And so, the weeks went by. Then months went by. Then years went by. And at some point, the old minister of war went by. It wouldn't be until another three years and five months passed by before Alfred delivered on his promise. And when he did, no one noticed or cared. It sat there, locked away in a room, from September 1847, 237 pounds of Krupp steel, until June 1849, when Alfred's goading finally moved the Artillery Test Commission to fire the damn gun. The dust had to be removed from its 6.5 centimeter, or 2.5 inch, muzzle. The cobwebs cleared away. Then it had to be dragged to the Teagle firing range. To show the thinking of the current Prussian test officers, Alfred did not get a response until three months after the test. They were impressed with its strength, it fired well, and they assumed that the only way to destroy it was to purposefully overload it with powder. Why you would want to do that with a weapon in the first place was beyond Alfred. What they didn't say, and what Alfred did know, was that they saw it as a freak. But as proof that no thought of cannon advancement had occurred in those three years and five months, the letter to Alfred ended this way. It was superb, but can you make a bronze cannon last longer? Or are iron ones, can you make them bigger? That would be of interest to us. 
And steel cannon are probably too expensive anyway. Can you work on that as well? I'm sure Krupp wanted to scream, You only have to buy a Krupp cannon once. It wouldn't lose its shape after a while, like bronze. And with the right backing, large steel ones can be made. Forget iron cannon. But the Prussians weren't the only ones with an attitude eschewing change. Samuel Morris spent eight years dragging his coat around before making certain military personnel see the light. And others meeting rejection around this time were Richard Gatlin of the U.S., England's Henry Shrapnel, and the Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin of Germany. Change, especially sweeping change, is the equivalent of a revolution to military thinking. Alfred took the rebuffs personally, as he always did, but what he couldn't get past was the hostility behind the nose. He didn't understand that before he and others like Morris, Gatlin, and Shrapnel came along. A ranking officer could, generally, go about his profession and plan out his battles with tactics that hadn't changed in centuries. After all, the Chinese had been using gunpowder since 1232 without any major changes, and cast bronze cannons had been around since the 1400s. But besides a few other changes or alterations, improvements just meant better methods. No real change, no real innovation. Not that innovation was needed, a general of the times would argue. After all, Wellington defeated Napoleon with bronze cannon. For him, and others like him, the proof was in the pudding. It turns out that Alfred met his Waterloo at Waterloo. So, late in 1849, Alfred put away his cannon blueprint and instead focused on the world's first upcoming fair to be held in England's Crystal Palace and three years hence, 1851. At the time, the standard by which European industrialists measured greatness in the cast steel business was who could make the biggest block of cast steel, called ingots. And for Alfred, this really meant who was organized and disciplined enough, because organization and discipline were the key ingredients to making large ingots. So, following his barked commands, Krupp had his men pour 98 crucibles at the same time. The result was a 4,300-pound ingot cast in one piece. By April 1851, Alfred was in England, readying for the fair. He kept detailed, almost minute-by-minute minute notes of his progress. One of his letters mentions the weldless steel railroad tires they will make on his return. The fair was about more than just showing off. It was everyone's chance to make business contacts. Within days of the fair, Krupp had a contract with Mr. Thomas Prosser to represent Freed Krupp of Essen in the U.S. concerning railroad tires. These two companies, Krupp and Prosser, would have a long history together. As the fair got closer, Alfred became more stressed. His ingot had not shown up yet. After all, you have to be careful with a 4,300-pound piece of steel. But the Sheffield's ingot was there, all 2,400 pounds of it. Alfred could insult Sheffield all he wanted, but if his didn't show up, his angry words were just that. Words. Getting more anxious by the second, Alfred wrote home and had the factory send anything else that might impress the judges. 
Soon, his rolling mills ferment, eight carriage and buffer springs, and his railroad axles were on display. Oh, and there was one more crate soon opened. Once on display, it was simply described as gun and carriage. Surrounding it were cast steel cuirass breastplates. As the ingot had still not shown up yet, Krupp, ever the salesman, went to work. For whatever reason, and history was changed for this, he decided to show off his six-pounder. It was polished to a mirror finish and mounted on hand-rubbed ash, the wood glorious in its contrast to the cast steel. And arranged all around the cannon were six shining armor breastplates, and over all of this was a military tent. Atop the tent was the Royal Prussian flag and shield. As a display, it was a marvel, and it worked. Men were stirred, thinking, with Napoleon safely gone, of military glory and honor. The ladies swooned in thinking of young, strong men in tight uniforms. But all this came to a quick end when his ingot finally showed up. Everyone gaped. Alfred joked that it was the Sheffield ingot's grandfather, and he was right. The Sheffield forgers was embarrassed, and Alfred glowed. His ingot's size, its weight, its obvious perfection. The judges handed Alfred the gold medal and proclaimed him a genius. Even Queen Victoria stopped by Alfred's tent to momentarily admire his exhibition. After all was said and done, a few English newspapers let love of country rule them and proclaimed Krupp's ingot flawed and weak. However, most English papers told the truth and marveled at it. The cannon did not sell after the fair, and that was almost okay with Krupp. People in the business went on and on about his ingot, but the public talked about his gun. And for this, Alfred felt that he could see into the future. He would go to every fair and bring his cannon, and others he would make as soon as he got home. Just after the fair, Alfred turned 40, and as it was 1851, it was assumed that most of his life was behind him. But Alfred didn't care. He was who he was, hard, tough, unbending, and he was beyond learning anything new now. To quote Alfred, he wrote at this time, Two things alone can move me, honor and prosperity. Unquote. Nothing else mattered. Not his mother's health that ended in her passing away just before the fair. Not his brother Herman's factory at Bernhoff that was now wallowing in debt. Honor and prosperity. Well, his honor and his prosperity. And touching on prosperity, right before the fair, Alfred had perfected his cast steel axles and springs and signed a big contract with the Cologne Minden Essenbahn, or railway company. This contract covered the cost of building a shop just for the railroad business, and its future was never in doubt. There were those at the fair that professed disappointment that Krupp didn't offer up something more appropriate in this post-Napoleon peaceful time. But they, not Krupp, were wrong in reading the tea leaves. In fact, U.S. companies had displayed a plow 
beautifully arranged with a shiny coat and American paintings hanging around it, but no one paid attention to it. Even though his mother's death only earned a single line in the thousands of letters he wrote, there was one personal issue forcing its way to the front of Alfred's mind. His mother was gone, and his sister Ida, now with her cash settlement, had taken up her own life. Who would take care of the house? Who would take care of any children that any of the Crump line might have? Who would take care of Alfred? There was only one thing for it. He had to get married. So, like all his other business dealings, he began to shop around for the best bargain. It would take a while, but he would close this deal, just like he did all the others. <laughs> 